Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On this last episode of 2016, I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio someone who spends a lot of time in the studio <laughs> already, Lucy Gilman. You can Hi, already Tom. hear her laughter. She is the, let's see if I get all of her titles right, she's the station manager at WNHH. She is a reporter for the New Haven Independent. And most pertinent for this episode, she is host of the weekly program on WNHH, Kitchen Sink, which plays every every other noon, every other Friday at noon. Every, every other Friday noon. noon. Um, every other ev- noon. Every other Friday at noon. And I you, you forgot uh, like resident Jewish mom and cookie baker. Yes. So her show is about food and New Haven. And you can tell that food is something that Lucy feels quite passionately about. And so for the first segment of today's show... Will mark the second installment of our food and movie series. Now, yes. you may be saying, second installment? I didn't know there was a first installment. I didn't know this was a series. Tell me more. I'm so intrigued. Okay, listener, allow me to elaborate. Uh, Lucy and I, uh, back in the spring, reviewed a movie, a documentary about the LA Times restaurant critic Jonathan Gold called City of Gold. Uh, just one of our favorite movies of the year. Uh, you can find a copy of that interview at deepfocusradio.com or by going to SoundCloud and looking up the WNHH community radio feed. Uh, and we thought that it would be nice to have an ongoing collaboration between our two shows in which we talk about the intersections of food and movies, what we consume through our mouths and what we consume through our eyeballs, where these two art forms intersect. Yeah. Uh, and so on today's show, we're going to look back in time at a great food documentary by the American independent documentarian Les Blank from 1980, a movie called Garlic is as Good as Ten Mothers. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by Alan Appel for a review of Kenneth Lonergan's new movie, Manchester by the Sea, which stars Casey Affleck as a down-and-out janitor from Boston who is jerked out of his daily routine of kind of miserableness to look after his recently orphaned nephew. But first, yeah, Lucy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. I spend a lot of time in this room. Yes. Okay. Well, let's spend a few minutes more talking about garlic. (laughs) Garlic is as good as 10 mothers. So I did a bad thing a couple days ago. I was was looking for movies about food to watch um, with you so that we could talk about on the show. And I suggested we talk about uh, the 1989 movie by Peter Greenaway, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Uh, a celebrated movie about food, a critique of Thatcherite England, and a very, as I soon realized, 15 minutes in the movie, a very violent movie. So it's that very one, violent. it was a little late, it was a little violent, so we decided to switch uh, tracks. But I think that we switched for the best, yeah. because the movie that we settled on, one, it's only 50 minutes. It's a very short documentary. But two, it is this delightful, odd documentary about an incredibly idiosyncratic culture of like around garlic, a celebratory culture around garlic in late 70s, very early 80s, Northern California. And I wonder if we could start by, I'm, I'm just interested to hear your general impression of the movie. Was this, besides being a short and nonviolent movie, was this one that you uh, enjoyed watching? Well, I, I will say the only moment of violence uh, and, and sort of uh, visceral reaction that I experienced was when uh, there is a great deal of garlic employed in uh in the making of sausage and i'm sure it's very good sausage but i i sort of had to turn away as as meat was being ground out uh and sort of spit out of this grinder but yeah i i mean i i absolutely love this movie i love that a very young alice waters is in in it and uh chez panisse as it's kind of coming up and figuring out what it is 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 also in this movie 
Um, but I, I just thought it was utterly charming from, you know, from the outset to its end. It interviews, for instance, people who belong to the group Lovers of the Stinking Rose. And of course, the stinking rose in this case is garlic. It talks about vampires with Werner Herzog. Like it, it, it sort of jumps around a little bit and you don't always know what it's going um, but throughout you have food and garlic. And I think um, I think at least what you did, Tom, was right after finishing the movie, you ate probably half a head of garlic, some of it raw. Um, and uh, and but it, it really has sort of reinvigorated in me a willingness to cook new things, but also um, the realization that there are curative properties in natural foods like garlic, like ginger. There are anti-inflammatory properties and and I, I know that sounds kind of crunchy, but it's a really good reminder. So I think that I mean, when we talk about food and movies, there are a couple of different kind of roads into understanding how food functions in the context of a movie. And I love, um, maybe we can dig into a few of those aspects with Garlic is as Good as Ten Mothers. And one is, uh, you know, I've been reading this book on the history of food and movies, and a historian describes the kind of the arc of food and movies towards the 1970s and 80s with the birth of this kind of the food film genre. And he said the most important development and the kind of the hallmark of any food movie is the close-up color photography mm. of food that's meant to kind of heighten the sensory experience of the audience uh, to kind of meant to make them salivate, to kind of make them feel, as you watch, it's it's meant to kind of excite a number of different senses, in particular, you know, your your taste, and that you are watching something and you are titillated by it, you kind of feel like you are physically participating in, and this is what the, like, the cooking network and the food network, and this is what, this is where their bread and butter is. It's meant to make you feel hungry, but also, like, excited about the food that you're watching. And I think that this movie... I mean, this movie really, this comes towards the beginning of the kind of rise of that food genre of movies, but we get a lot of close-ups, a lot of color, and he really emphasizes the importance of color. Color is so important in playing to this kind of our sensory experience of food uh, in the same way that music helps us better understand a scene and that it underscores it. It provides a kind of emotional background to what we're watching. Food just isn't the same if it's photographed in black and white. Here we have close-ups of garlic being mashed, being mm -hmm. peeled, uh, being put into rubs that are put on pieces of meat, on vegetables, on stuffed women. Into, on, on women. You're, <laughs> the, the erotic nature of garlic that oh, yeah. this movie focuses on. And it's really, it's, I think that's totally, I mean, we talk about like food porn. This is the titillation of food and really the intersections of, of enjoyment of food, that like sensory pleasure of food and the sensory pleasure of the body. And I really appreciate how this movie in just 50 minutes and through its kind of odd and very low key and very meandering structure, it focuses on all of the different uh, pleasures of, of garlic. And I wonder, just thinking about how garlic is visually represented in this movie, for you, did that, did that work to not just make you want to go out and, and eat some garlic, but did you find it visually compelling the way that Les Blank photographs all of the different ways that garlic can be incorporated into foodstuffs. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, in some ways, I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about um, 
sort of this is what the the food network has capitalized on well before there was the food network of course there was the french chef on pbs and that was in black and white before it was in color but i think there's something undeniably similar about this movie and about what pbs was doing when they brought on julia child which was totally delighting people and sort of bringing her or in this case bringing garlic and bringing alice waters and the the members of Lovers of the Stinking Rose sort of into people's kitchen in a very approachable way. And yet people are totally uh, excited and delighted by the fact that this is something different. This really isn't something that they've seen before, or maybe they've seen garlic smelled garlic cooked with garlic, but it's a little bit idiosyncratic. Um, you know, especially when you're seeing like people with... Uh, just uh, like knots and braids of garlic around their necks, for instance. That's a wonderful, wonderful image. So yeah, I, I mean, it totally worked for me. And I think the multi-sensory experience, which is very, I mean, that is endemic to the cooking process, right? Um, and, and so when you get not just the color of garlic, but the sound of the knife going through garlic and the sound of peeling garlic, you're there and you kind of, you want to get up, I, even though this is only 51 minutes, you kind of want to get up halfway through and, uh, you know, and, and throw garlic into maybe whatever you have on the stove. So this movie is specifically about garlic, but the way that it treats garlic, it could be applied to really any experience of food, that food that people feel passionately about. Because as much as we hear about the medicinal properties of garlic, the kind of sensual properties of garlic, the restorative properties of garlic, we also we see a lot of food preparation. You're right. We see we don't see a lot of eating. We don't see a lot of people shoving food into their faces. We see much like the potential, um, you know, the audience is waiting at a table, waiting for this meal to be done. Yeah. We're just kind of salivating as as uh, Alice Waters, you know, cooks together the garlic and vegetables and stuffs it inside a chicken and then wraps it in dough and then bakes it. I mean, we are as anticipating that satisfaction as much as the people at the actual table. But this movie, I think this is a, a common trope with uh, a lot of food movies. It celebrates the um, the communal nature of eating. Eating is not something, at least as represented here, eating is not something that is done uh, in solitary. It is not done, or it is not maybe best done when, just by yourself in front of a TV. Uh, the type of eating that Les Blank and that Alice Waters and that all the other people in this movie are promoting is one that ultimately is about community, that brings people together. And we'll talk about how it brings people to be together because the focus on individual cultures and the unique kind of cultural celebrations around food is really interesting. But this movie ultimately, I mean, it is, yes, it's about garlic. Yes, it's about food, but really it's about a vehicle to bring people together in a celebratory array around something that that makes you makes you feel good about being in a group that lets you revel in traditions in music i mean music is such an important uh theme in this this movie uh i wanted did this and when you were watching this movie and thinking about the community aspects that garlic helps incite at least according to les blank did you think that just any food could be swapped in and you'd have basically the same kind of central contention which is that food at its best brings people together in a kind of revelry? I, I don't know if any food could be swapped in, but certainly, you know, I, I think one could make a film about bouillabaisse and be just as, as compelling or, you know, grapes or apples or pears and, and be just as interesting. I think this works partly because it's funky and, and because it's weird. But I think the larger point that you're getting at is that food is love. And if I found anything in hosting Kitchen Sink and also experiencing 
New Haven, which is really a food friendly town, it's that this, uh, the sense that food is love and feeding someone is how you show that you care about them, that you want them to be healthy, that you want them to feel that they are loved in return. Really, it, it goes across all sorts of social boundaries. It crosses languages. It, you know, it, it crosses religions. I thought, you know, growing up in a family that was half Catholic and half Jewish, that there was something to it because I had Italian members of the family on one side and this big Jewish Russian contingent on the other side. And what I've found is when I've talked to people who love to cook, who love to have their families over, or if someone in their family loves to cook for them, it is a gesture of compassion. And, um, and when people can come together and experience that, especially from different walks of life, which we don't totally see in this film, and maybe that's something we can talk about, when friends come together and, and sort of gather around food, it's something that's really beautiful that's taking place. So I think one of the, that's beautifully put, by the way, but I think that one of the more memorable parts of City of Gold, the documentary that we spoke about in the spring about the very adventurous uh, Jonathan Gold, who's the LA Times restaurant critic, is this Pico Boulevard experiment that he describes. How he was, when he was a young copy editor, I think at the LA Times, he was very bored. He made a mission after work every day. He would try a different restaurant in Pico Boulevard. And it's like a mile and a half. And he wound up walking, maybe even longer. And he tried dozens of restaurants over the course of the summer. And this, you know, this boulevard cut through 10, 15 different ethnically kind of segregated neighborhoods. And the contention of the movie is that LA, contemporary LA, is uh, kind of authentically American in its diversity and how it is a mosaic. It is not a melting pot where all these different cultures, well, although we do get the Korean taco trucks, I and mean, we do see a melting of cuisines. But what's most exciting for Jonathan Gold is how you can go to a Korean restaurant in one neighborhood, and then a Mexican restaurant in the next, and then an Indian in the next, and you get to sample all of these different kind of authentic representations of uh, international culture and cuisine all in one city. Here, we have all of the different kind of international culture and cuisine coming to you. He's not walking along Pico right. Boulevard. It all, it all seems to like converge upon the Gilroy Garlic Festival or something like that. But we see um, a number of different... Now, most of those cultures are European that we see in this movie, but not, it's not exclusively. We see French approaches to garlic, Italian, Spanish, and, uh, and Andalusian gypsy is kind of the Spanish represent representative. We see Mexican, we see Chinese. And I think that in its exploration of the kind of intercultural value of garlic, this movie is saying that just as much as garlic brings people to the table together, it also helps us understand the kind of universalities that connect people around the world. Even if you don't speak the same language, even if you don't look the same, ultimately your your values at the table are similar in that you're looking to enjoy and share. Well, and and you see that with the use of instrumental music in this in this movie as well. I mean, I I can't underestimate the importance of having in one scene the Balfa brothers, which was very cool to see footage of that. And then in the next scene you have a band called the Camembert. And so uh they're kind of trying to play this like folksy French music and you're just and you never know like what musician you're going to get from one scene to the next and sometimes you turn around you know Alice Waters is in her kitchen and you turn around and like the camembert is playing right there as she stuffs chickens I I love that scene and that so Les Blank is best known as a documentarian of American kind of folk culture folk cultures and particularly music he's made a lot of documentaries about uh 
music in Louisiana, Cajun music, Tex-Mex music, polka music. And I was reading an essay on the Criterion Collections website today about Les Blank in which uh, a, a historian named Andrew Horton describes him as the American Peter Bruegel. Mm. Uh, and let me just very quickly read this, this one quote. He says, like Bruegel, who captured the spirit and nature of peasant cultures, Blank portrays in so many of his documentaries the spirit of basically rural folk living simply. American blacks, Chicanos, Cajuns, Creoles, Polish Americans, and Appalachians are documented through their food, conversation, celebrations, environments, and most especially their music. So Bruegel, the 17th century Dutch painter, uh, is kind of compared in his celebration of kind of folk music and culture and celebrations. Uh, in the same way that Blank does. But I love how, just talking about how the documentary is put together, we think that a lot of this music is the soundtrack, right? It's just, it's kind of, it's playing underneath the the preparation of food. And I love how it goes from being a, uh, um, just a non-diegetic to a diegetic sound. And then all of a sudden the camera moved and we see the band actually in the kitchen. Yeah, as it described. It's not just like he thought this music would work well with this scene. It's like, no, the band is literally right next to the people preparing the food. Yeah, I mean, everything about this in a way that is not so it's it's totally charming this is totally charming and by that i do not mean it's precious because i think garlic is also a relatively humble thing um and and yet it's given this celebratory and or sort of celebrity status in this and and i think it's also a really good reminder you know yes you have the slow food movement for instance but at the same time we have more options than ever like if i want to drink my breakfast in soylent if i want a quick protein bar those are immediately at my fingertips and so to be reminded of whole food and its importance i think cannot be underestimated so I well, let me first say you are listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we are talking about food and movies, uh, in particular the Les Blank nineteen eighty documentary Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers, and I'm joined by Kitchen Sink host uh, Lucy Gelman. Lucy, I want to talk about the political message of this movie, if yeah. there is any. But first, I want to ask you about when we were when I was beginning my uh, rambling monologue about intercultural celebration and unity in this movie, you scoffed a little bit about the, um, I guess, the representation in the movie. Tell me a little bit about when, when you think about the representation of different cultures in this garlic documentary, um, what gave you a bit of hesitation? I mean, this is such a California documentary. It is to its core, a California documentary. This would not have happened in Connecticut. This wouldn't have happened in Massachusetts. It wouldn't have happened in the middle of the country. And that's partly because of California's agricultural um, sort of scene and the and it's prominence. It's the bread pro- basket. Yeah, prominence and the amount. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I do think, you know, you're getting a lot of people, partly because Alice Waters figures so prominently in the movie, you're getting people who can afford to eat at Chez Panisse. But also, I think the only woman of color in the movie is highlighted because she's using um, dehydrated garlic and she's criticized for using dehydrated garlic. And I thought, how unfortunate is it that there are surely other chefs that the this you know documentary ke- crew could have gone out to and interviewed and um, and they pick someone and, and really chastise her a little bit and she she becomes kind of the butt of a joke in in maybe the only moment that made me a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, it's it's also worth saying that, you know, she has an accent and uh, and someone probably less blank or blank blank um, thought 
you know, it was necessary to put subtitles under that when none of the other people speaking English have subtitles. Although and so- we only get one subtitle, and it's at the very end of her scene. And it, I think it's meant to emphasize her last few sentences, which are, it's modern times, we want to focus on whatever's most convenient. But I agree, there's even the guy speaking Spanish, or the like Andalusian gypsy, I don't think he even has subtitles. Or maybe he does, yeah. He, yeah, I forget if he speaks in English or in Spanish, but... Right, but, but sort of the... Um- you know, look at look at this uncultured person not using garlic in the way that we think it should be used and heralded. That made me a little bit uncomfortable in watching this. So I do think that that, I mean, that strikes me as more kind of unfortunate editing as instead of malicious racism. But I do think that we should identify that this is a, so yeah, it's made in 1980, but this is a 1970s movie. And really, this is a movie about the extension of 1960s counterculture in Northern California. If City of Gold is very specific to contemporary LA and the just incredible heterogeneity of people and cultures and cuisines in that city today, this movie is very specific to the um, the kind of post-hippie moment um, mm-hmm. in 1960s Northern California, where the... Uh, intense kind of political radicalism of these young people has channeled itself kind of away from the explicitly political realm and into the world of aesthetics and into the world of kind of physical pleasure and sensory pleasure. Now, these people who aren't, they're, they're not necessarily like devoid of any political thoughts and maybe we can transition to that, but their focus is very much on a, a kind of insular celebra- celebration of the senses as opposed to, you know, the revolution advocated by, you know, people on campus in 1964 in Berkeley. Oh, yeah. I, I think a good 25, 30 minutes of this, if, if not more, is kind of this uh, garlic scented pleasure dome, if you will. And um, and that's part of the charm of the documentary. You know, I, I don't think go go watch this documentary and then live your life exactly as the people in it live theirs. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's true. Although I'm interested to hear, you know, what you think of the sort of political message at the end of the movie. And so maybe we can segue to that. So I was I was watching some extra features around uh, this movie that the Criterion Collection posted. And there's an interview with the editor Maureen Gosling, who's a longtime collaborator of Les Blank. And she said that in the first kind of preview screening that she gave to a friend when they were kind of assembling footage, because Les Blank worked over the course of months and years on documentaries. And he just kind of just kind of embedded himself into these communities, made himself feel comfortable and everyone around him comfortable. And then he'd, you know, chat, drink beer, pick up his camera, record, and then put it down. Or Alice Waters said that he recorded their kind of Bastille Day celebrations for three years before he realized that he had like a full movie's Mm. worth of documentary material. But Maureen Gossam was saying that the one critique that she really valued and really made its way into the movie was that they had initially a pretty linear presentation of garlic from the field you know, picked by these agricultural workers to the kitchen, to the preparation, to the cultural celebrations. And it's kind of flipped in the in the ultimate movie. We start with the culture, then we go to the kitchen, and then we go backwards to the field. And I think that the power of that kind of reverse uh, presentation is that we see, you know, we see explicitly written on the screen, um, support the people, support the workers that make this food available to us. And we see a lot of agricultural workers, you know, um, pulling up uh, garlic stalks in the fields, um, cutting them in incredibly quick and seemingly dangerous ways at a factory, chopping them and preparing them. And there's a lot of kind of labor on display, uh, agricultural labor on display at the end of the movie. And I think that 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, cer- I'm certainly very glad that that made its way into the movie. And it's not just an afterthought. There's a good, you know, 10 minutes in a 50-minute documentary dedicated to labor. But ultimately, I think that it is, if it's not an afterthought, it's also not the primary focus. The primary focus is on celebration around food. And I think that part of the celebration around food for Les Blank is understanding where the food comes from. And where the food comes from inevitably leads to who is working to help produce this food. Uh, so this is, I mean, this could have just been like a Pleasure Dome movie, but it is also, and it, it's not critical, but it is an introspection. It's at least looking at all of the different steps, including the labor that goes into making this kind of organic, locally grown produce available to people. I think that's true. It felt to me a little too much like an afterthought in that. So I, I think the message support your farmers is a really good message to have. It's a good message in the 60s and 70s. It's still a very good message now. Um, But it felt like an afterthought in that you get maybe a, what, five-minute montage at the end. The fact that these are migrant, for the the large part, migrant workers. um, Almost all women. Almost all women sort of picking and producing food that white people will celebrate and consume. Um, And and so we're also talking about a huge class distinction here. And... um, you know, I, I think you are right to say that this isn't where Les Blank wanted to, to go with it. He didn't want to make a political documentary. And as a viewer, part of me says, okay, I'm going to honor that. But, um, you know, I, I also sort of wish there had been a little more investigation at the end of these are the people who are producing our food. Here's how we can be conscientious consumers. So this, I mean, this movie is first and foremost a celebration. I've said that before, but I think you're right. He's not, this isn't investigative reporting. He, Although he is someone interested in people who exist on the kind of outskirts of society, the outskirts of cultural norms. Uh, and I guess my, my last question for you as before we wrap up this conversation is, uh, we've talked about two movies now in this food and movie series, City of Gold by Laura Gabbard, which is a 2016 documentary about Jonathan Gold, and now this 1980 movie about garlic is better than, than 10 Mothers. Um, is this, uh, I guess, do you see appreciable differences between these movies approach to food? Is there one that you liked more than the other? Not just one movie you like more than the other, but the way of investigating food. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I see Jonathan Gold as, um, as not just an an, uh, award winning and deservedly food, deservedly. So excuse me, food writer, but as someone who uses his food writing in a way that I don't know if he ever intended as a sort of political activism in a, a really important way, in a significant way, and a, a critical way that you don't see anymore in Bon Appetit or uh, Gourmet Magazine or or even Lucky Peach, which, you know, is sp- supposed to have features on food justice and really doesn't always. Um, I, I think this is more entertainment. That said, I think it's totally charming. I would recommend to every single viewer out there that they go out um, and, and see this or so either rent it or it's on, I know it's on Vimeo and one other source. It's a, a really great way to spend an hour if you need a writing break or a study break or just, uh, you know, a, a movie to go with your maybe glass of wine and head of garlic. Eaten raw. Eaten raw. Yes. Garlic is better than 10 mothers is a 1980 documentary by Les Blank. Um, I want to thank Lucy Gelman, host of Kitchen Sink, so much for coming on to talk about this. Lucy, thank you, Tom. As always, thank you, and and Happy New Year, and best of luck to Kitchen Sink. We look forward to the next food and movie review. Yeah, happy holidays, Tom. Okay, coming up next, a review of something a lot less chipper, but hopefully as thought-provoking, Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea. But first, 
let's hear a little bit of our favorite Ellison Jackson song, Man from Lowell. Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. So the AV Club, a website on that writes about all different aspects of uh, popular culture, but I'm particularly fond of their movie section. They recently came out with their top 20 movies of 2016, and their top two were, number two was Moonlight, number one, Manchester by the Sea. This is a movie that I think in art house circles is getting a lot of buzz, a lot of acclaim. Uh, it is by auteur and I think second time, maybe third time filmmaker, Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, and it is about um, a down and out janitor from Boston named Lee Chandler, played by Casey Affleck. Um, early in the movie, Lonergan establishes Chandler's routine as a cold and miserable one. He cleans toilets and gets yelled at by angry tenants. He shovels snow from sidewalks and throws away discarded furniture. He drinks too much and punches people who wear suits and ties at bars. And then he goes home to his small basement apartment and falls asleep watching the Bruins or Celtics game on TV. And repeat, and repeat, and repeat. Uh, the movie's plot kicks into gear when Chandler's brother Joe suddenly dies and Lee is jerked out of his dismal existence in Boston and temporarily relocated to Manchester-by-the-Sea, a coastal town in Northern Mass, to look after his teenage nephew Patrick played by Lucas Hedges. So, Alan, I, I'm eager to hear what you thought of the movie. I know that at our holiday party a couple days ago, um, you offered a, uh, a, a, a kind of ambiguous critique. I haven't heard the full response yet, but you said playwrights do not necessarily make for the best of film directors. Um, elaborate upon that for me. So uh, written the screenplay and the, the, the director, the, the, the danger is there's not enough of a critical eye. 
And while I loved your uh, opening description, actually, the, your, your description made me really want to see the movie that you were describing. Unfortunately, uh, it, 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 I don't think it was the movie that, that I saw that we're talking about. Um, and, and the problem was, in part, your, your ironic uh, uh, repeat, repeat, repeat. So the, the, the movie it tends to um, establish this emotional identity for the Casey Affleck character, um, depressed, repressed, angry. Um, and we see that in one interaction after the other. Um, the, the, the problem is, is so, so there's not enough of uh, somebody uh, uh, you know, standing next to um, Kenneth Lonergan and saying, um, let's vary it here. Let's, let's make this scene not as long as the previous one. Let's see if we could um, uh, you know, uh, maybe show, uh, uh, t- turn this character and show another facet of Casey Affleck. Um, and also, uh, somebody should have said to him, um, we need some of that backstory sooner. We got to figure out why this guy is, um, uh, has this very peculiar profoundly depressed emotional affect that we see because i think what i said to you at our holiday party in a ho 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 mood was that the movie was contributing to the opioid epidemic in the northeast so this movie has uh, i think a few structural problems for me in its way in in its pacing and in its editing and i even though I somewhat tongue-in-cheek described the end repeat and repeat of the opening sequence, that was the most powerful sequence of the movie for me um, cinematically, and I thought it worked the best in terms what of, are you of to? cinematic editing. So when we're introduced to the character, we see him working as a janitor in Quincy, Massachusetts. We see the um, facades of the different buildings that he tends to. We see a cross-section of tenants and his interactions with tenants, and how each interaction, whether about um, a clogged toilet, in which the tenant is talking on the phone about how she has this kind of sexual crush on the janitor, but she's, she's talking with a friend on the phone and he overhears it as he's unclogging the toilet. Um, and then, of course, that interaction doesn't lead anywhere, but we get, you know, there's a type of kind of mysterious um, kind of empathy and attraction to this loner, this kind of attractive loner um, that some of the tenants have. We get the just out and out abuse from a woman who's taking a shower and accuses him of everything that's wrong with the plumbing. Right, and then the landlord. We see the exploitation from the landlord so i feel like yes that's correct so within so we do get repetition in that we get you know maybe two minute sequences that all follow a very similar mold interaction with tenant shoveling sidewalk throwing things away in the dumpster but the very small differences within each of those sequences i feel like reveal something a little bit different about the character we get the the anger the kind of dispassionate nature the repressed nature all of a sudden, we get the explosion of anger. We get him at a bar drinking and then getting into conflict. We, we see all of these different shades of a relatively, I mean, complex, if also archetypical kind of repressed Massachusetts um, alcoholic. For the rest of the movie, the structure shifts from that one of minor variations within repe- repetition to this very um, kind of belabored flashback structure where we see the story unfolding in real time and then all of a sudden we're taken back to a time when his brother is alive when 
he's fighting with his wife when there's a tragedy, a very serious tragedy involving his home and family life. Well, right, that's the key information. That's the key. But that going well, from the repetition to the throwing us back and forward in time, I felt only distended the movie. All of a sudden, we were watching two very long, kind of drawn-out stories. That's correct. Whereas the compression of the opening sequence I found so powerful. Well, the other problem with the, with, with the, with the section after the opening, and I agree, it's, it, is, it is intriguing, although I... I wasn't as astute to pick up these variations that you were talking about. See, that's where I think you've got a playwright at work on the screen and who's not really comfortable there. Because you, if you're a live audience and you're sitting in the fourth row, uh, you can pick up these differences profoundly, you know, like a, like a raised eyebrow and so on and so forth. And I, I don't think that I don't think it comes through. Maybe it's a problem with Casey with with Casey Affleck's affect, um, but but it. After the pattern that we you've just discussed is established, I find that from the emotional arc of the character continues to repeat that, even though the storyline um, varies. Every encounter that he has, it's inability to express what's happening in the moment, a kind of sense of repression, and then the scene ends with his throwing the beer glass or kicking the chair. And, you know, enough is enough with, 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 with this particular... Um, Southie from Boston. And, you know, he's operating, Lonergan is operating in this wonderful, I, I think it's already established as a kind of cinematic tradition of these, um, uh, uh, you know, Boston um, blue-collar kids. Uh, you know, uh, his brother Ben Affleck was a bank robber in a recent movie, another wonderful movie, who he falls in love with uh, um, somebody who's, uh, that he encounters in the course of the robbery and has to conceal his identity. I love this whole genre, and for for me, what the movie reminded me of, um, but but only uh, I, I think by pale comparison is you know, what is I, the the title escapes me, but it's that wonderful film that Clint Eastwood directed with Sean Penn, uh, three friends, Tim. Oh, Mystic River. Mystic River. Now there you have another instance of these three people who are grown men who are friends, and the whole backstory of the childhood abduction and rape of one of the three altering, which has huge impact on the current moment of the movie. The, the backstory information and the leakage of uh, information is handled beautifully. And in the movie we're discussing in, um, what's it called again? <laughs> it's called Manchester by the Sea. Man- it's, I do, it's, it's, it's messed up. So I, I, do, I don't want to discount the emotional impact of the latter two hours of the movie for me, because there were some sequences that really, when it, when they relied on the skills of the actors of Michelle Williams as the estranged ex-wife, Casey Affleck and Lucas, uh, I think Lucas, Lucas Hedges as the, as the, the, as the teenager. Um, I found the, those very powerful. And, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on the negatives too much, but getting to the, the editing again, this movie felt oddly rushed and drawn out at the same time for me in that some sequences uh, we spend, we, we seem to leave a scene kind of arbitrarily and abruptly too early at the kind of right before the peak of some kind of emotional interaction. But now I get that this is a repressed character. We are supposed to understand how he is fundamentally empty on side. And I'm interested in hearing, you know, talking with you about how this is a movie about grief. This is a representation of a certain type of inescapable grief for someone. But we we see that when Lonergan just lets the camera roll and watch these characters play out their incredibly intense and fraught and complicated relationship. For example, at the funeral of Joe, when we see 
Casey Affleck meet his ex-wife and her new husband for the first time, and we see them embrace. And all, all I could look at was Casey Affleck, how his eyes were open as they embraced, and how they were just drawn to the side of his face. He's looking down and away. He can barely control himself, but he's also not crying. He's not an, an emotive person. He is just someone who is intensely uncomfortable because he is in an emotionally vulnerable spot and he's done everything possible to try to remove himself from emotionally vulnerable situations after the tragedy of his family. Uh, there too many times Lonergan cuts away a little too soon and doesn't let us kind of look at Affleck as he's processing the situation. Another well, scene that I, I loved was after the kind of, there's a very important fire at his house um, and we see his wife taken away in an ambulance and the camera has Affleck, uh, the frame has him in the middle of the frame, his back to us and he's just standing there still hulking, kind of kind of sulking and watching the ambulance take him away and in those moments of just kind of stillness and looking I really was hit by the impact of what this guy is facing when we're jumping around and when we're leaving scenes too soon, it it takes on the theatrical kind of artificial construction of of theater that I find distances me a little bit um, from the very kind of emotionally wrought story at hand. But let me get to the the representation of grief. This is a man who experiences grief as a hollowing out of himself. At one point in one of his very few expressive moments, he describes himself as having nothing there. He says there's nothing there to his estranged ex-wife. And she's trying, to, she's crying, she's trying to get him to emote, to come to some kind of reconciliation. He says, there's nothing there. Um, what did you think of this representation of, of grief? I, I think it's profoundly problematic. I mean, he's represented as a kind of, uh, what shall I call it, like a hero of grief. And you know, to me, it's, it, there's nothing heroic about what he's doing. What, what it's about is, um, is punishment. And I think the thing that you elided over too quickly is that really the this the central piece of uh, backstory information is uh, how he, in a moment of drunkenness, and let's not t- let's not give away the exact thing that happens, but in a moment, well, why of not? Drunk- oh, because I, I I didn't know what was happening, okay. and I was quite I no. hadn't read any reviews, and I knew that there was a tragedy, but I didn't know the specifics of what. So I'm not supposed to reveal. So, but you specific. say in a moment of um, drunkenness, he makes a decision that has terrible implications for his family. Well, I mean the ver- I mean I mean the worst. I mean I mean what he did led to the death of his children. I mean, and that's you know maybe what Lonergan was uh, was was swept away by was almost the kind of Greek tragedy uh, proportions of a human being doing that kind of thing. I mean, I can't think of anything worse. And in fact. I think an hour of the movie has to go by before that piece of the backstory emerges. And only that, to me, can sort of um, explain, maybe even justify, his behavior. Because the behavior, living in a room, denying himself all pleasure, uh, not letting himself uh, even think about a relationship with another woman. Uh, And and the key thing about the film, uh, which I gather is is the... uh, thing he's trying to work towards, and he does towards the end of the movie, is is uh, 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 coming to grips with with uh, uh, taking care of his brother's son, uh, the child. I guess in the sense that he himself is no longer in possession of to take care of. Um, I lost my thought. All, well, I, I all, think- all of that is 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 interesting, but but um, is, it's 
it's just over it's just uh uh it's i mean this young man needs some therapy and this genre that i talked about these southies they'd rather drink and throw chairs and have bar fights than have any any therapy but i think it's oh, that the there's got to be some more self knowledge for them as characters or we as audience need more knowledge about them and actually it's putting me in mind of uh, goodwill hunting sure. which is another southie film uh where where part of part of their their crew uh i guess it's matt damon who is, is a producer of this movie and casey affleck has a small role in goodwill hunting as well so i think the, these movies very, are very temperamentally yeah. similar and that was a magnificent movie because he here this kid is also punishing himself this genius of a school janitor a janitor, very much these guys like janitors. Casey Affleck's a janitor, Matt Damon's a janitor in a school. But he's also a mathematical genius, but he can't break through without the um, intercession uh, of uh, Robin Williams. So this, I mean, this movie, it, I have no problem in general with a movie that plays around with its presentation of narrative. It doesn't have to happen all in a straight line for me, but when, and I, I kind of like that we get a character who we, we know is struggling with grief, but we're not sure of the specifics of it. Like I'm, I'm fine with that. The problem with this particular character and the delivery of that information is that his grief is so specifically tied to specifically what happened um, to his family. And I think that it's almost like uh, um, the director kind of, kind of tricking us or keeping the wool pulled over our eyes. And then that revelation has profound implications for the narrative itself. I mean, it's like I, if I watch this a second time, um, I think that I would have a profoundly different experience, not just because I know what happens and where it goes, but what happened to this guy's family is so important to understanding him in the first half that it does it does right. feel like something is right. a little a little absent, not in an intriguing way, but just in a kind of inexplicable way. But I do, I mean, I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about um, Lucas Hedges as Patrick because I think he is a real he's a bright spot of this movie he's introduced as a very aggressive and angry character on the hockey rink and i thought okay we're going to have the conflict of this very passive and repressed person with someone who's just a firecracker but also a very kind of one note angry kid he's not that at all he is he is the entire spectrum of emotion for teenagers he's sensitive he's vulnerable he's um you know, sexually desirous. He's in a band. He's in theater. He's like a popular kid at school. He's a very gregarious kid, but not in a one note kind of angry, emotional way. He's he's got it all, and he is. Right. He has different facets that that the Casey Affleck character is not showing. Which is, I mean, which could be a. I I found their relationship a powerful part of the movie. The the conflict between just the love of life as a young person. I mean, Casey Affleck could have been Patrick when he was an 18 year old, right? We, it's easy to imagine him in that role, hanging out with friends at the hockey rink. Um, we see it, you know, playing ping pong in his basement. He is the center of attention. Maybe he's a little bit rowdier than Patrick, but he has that love of life as a younger person. Here we see the young person's approach to life and the older person's approach to life who is not capable of dealing well, right. with tragedy. And, and we should tell our listeners that we actually meet them in the, the very open, the opening scenes of this movie, Manchester by the Sea, are, it, it's, a, it's really a, a gorgeous uh, a kind of evocation of, a, a, I guess it's Cape Ann or off Gloucester, somewhere off of Rocky, Massachusetts, you know, someplace that uh, Herman Melville in the beginning of Moby Dick would have been comfortable with. And we Dramatic see, and cold. And very <laughs> cold, yeah. very cold. And, and we see the... The uh, the uh, uh, Lucas character 
as a, I guess, a nine or ten year old boy at the time, and um, and the uh, Casey Affleck character as uh, as his young uncle. I'm troubled uh, to appreciate that relationship. I find the age difference um, confusing. I don't know if if the Lucas Hedges is is too old hmm. to be the nephew, but. But what's interesting about that relationship, and you're right, it is, it is, it, it, well, it's the central relationship in the story. It, you know, maybe because, uh, you know, like I'm a, I'm, I'm a parent or something, and I was a kid once, but now I'm a grandparent. And I tell you, what's going on there, Tom, is that the child is the father of, uh, is the, is the father there. So the we young get, man is, is, yeah. is, 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 he's the more mature one in this. Well, right? because the case of Affleck character goes through his entire life acting in such a way as to draw people to him because he's handsome and mysterious, but his, he wants everybody to parent him and to nurse him and to, and to, and to, and to take him out of his uh, grief, although he's unaware that that's the task he seems to be assigning people. It's, it's an interesting case study. And the, you know, if this material were done as a play um, with all this action, like the tragedy with the central tragedy as well as all the backstory we've talked about, which is peppered through the movie, a director uh, would say to Kenneth Lonergan, um, all the exciting action uh, is happening off stage or in the past. In a movie, uh, off stage is often in the past. And that's off stage action um, is often lethal um, if it's not activated on the stage in a film. And I think a certain lethal. Um, um, backstoriness not brought into action before us is what's happening here. See, I, I think that it all depends on how you read um, the action in this. I, mean, I think the relationship between the two can qualify as action in this. You know, the the scenes in which we see Casey Affleck trying, not really trying, failing completely to make small talk with a woman who is the mother of the girlfriend who Patrick's trying to sleep with. I mean, there are scenes that are not just uh, kind of played for their stillness and their reflection. I mean, there are moments of tension and activity. It's not the same level of violence, maybe, that one thinks of, one thinks of action. But um, there are there are scenes here that rely upon the relationship between uncle and nephew that also, I mean, you, there is a a certain level of um, kind of anticipation and surprises to where it's going to go. Now, this character is not one full of surprises. <laughs> he's he's a pretty predictable character, so you can kind of yeah, say you it. know where it's going to go. But um, <laughs> but I I do think that there there's enough to mine in that relationship that I found it worth. I and mean, you you mentioned this, you know, you described him as a kind of hero of grief, and I was thinking a lot about how job like this character is right how he doesn't understand why he's being punished so but he's just he unlike job he's completely destroyed by that punishment he can't handle the suffering um but this movie does provide you know a, a reflection on grief without any kind of redemption or at least explicit redemption well, for a he character feels he does, unlike job who's a good man he feels he he not only does he feel he deserves his punishment he deserves a lot worse and he and he his actions in his life are, he's, he digs a hole as deeper and deeper as it can as it can get, and only in his encounters with the nephew does does he feel that he's being reeled out. So I know that I'm doing a disservice to this part of the discussion at the very end of the show, but I want to make sure to bring it up. And I'm not sure if this is something that you care about at all, since we talk about what ha- like I'm most interested in what happens on the screen when evaluating right. a movie. Right. But there's been a lot of conversation with the release of Manchester by the Sea about Casey Affleck's history of uh, kind of accusations of sexual assault against him. Uh, back in 2010, he settled two lawsuits with women who said that 
he um, made inappropriate sexual advances and inappropriate sexual kind of physical contact with them. And this that story of his past um, has really been brought up in contrast with that of Nate Parker's, the director of Birth of a Nation, which is the Nat Turner biopic from earlier this right. year, that was completely derailed by his um, the case of kind of alleged rape uh, against him back when he was a student at Penn State. And a lot of people I see on social media and was talking with Babs recently are wondering why Casey Affleck is not receiving the same kind of derailing treatment as Nate Parker, an African-American um, young film star, uh, did earlier in the year. And I think there are a number of reasons why there's a wonderful BuzzFeed piece that goes through all the different differences of uh, between the cases how Parker, one, is black, Affleck is white, that privilege, it goes a long way. Affleck is part of an established kind of film dynasty right now and that he's insulated through celebrity, whereas Nate Parker is a rising star. Parker is alleged um, yeah, of raping a woman versus inappropriate physical contact. It's that The caliber of the assault is a little bit different. But I wonder if, one, this is something, even if you're not you know, up to snuff on all the differences between the particulars of these cases, is this something that you um, care about at all, Alan, when thinking about you know, how much attention Manchester by the Sea should be getting, and are, should should we be appalled by the, the difference in treatment of Nate Parker and Casey Affleck? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not up to speed on that discussion. I think it's, I think it's, you know, culturally very significant, but, but uh, I don't, I don't know that, that his background is, is uh, related to what we see on the screen in, in Manchester by the sea, if anything, he's punishing himself. And, and, and maybe one way to interpret this is, uh, uh, he's, he's doing atonement on the screen as it were for what he's done in his real life. Yeah. I Cause think, he's not having a good time up there. No, he's not, but he's certainly getting a lot of praise and I think it's a praiseworthy performance. I mean, he restrained is the most popular adjective I've seen describing his piece. Like, I, I don't think that his performance in this is, the best part of the movie. And it's not a movie that will make my top 10 list, but I do think that it is a challenge to, um, to channel that type of repression in a way that is kind of visually engaging. And sometimes he fails, sometimes he succeeds, but that is, it's, it seems like a slog to do it. And so I commend him for the, the work that goes into creating this character. Good. All right. Manchester by the sea directed by Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, it is going to be getting a lot of awards attention, so you may be interested in seeing it, but also only if you're prepared to dwell upon some some grief. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show, as always, and for making this our first full year of uh, deep-focused episodes, uh, the best year in the show's history. Well, thank you, Tom, and I look forward to uh, uh, calling you on the telephone with my um, with my picks for like the best movie of the year. And... Um, I hesitate to say, but Manchester by the Sea is not in contention at the moment, but many other great movies we've talked about on the show are. So that number, if you are interested in uh, sharing for your, our best of show, which will be on January 5th, is 203-479-0376. Leave us a, uh, a voicemail on your favorite movie of the year, and we'll play it during the show. All right, coming up next is Elisa's Cocktail Hour. But first, let's hear a little bit of music. <laughs> 